Rabbi say at 12 o'clock, Ray Kaufman Schlitt is going to say a shear for the dorm counts in 12th grade in the base Madrash. Should be interesting. I'm, I ask request on thumbs. <coughs> my, wife's, my wife's father is retired. And he is spending hours and hours a day, like really, I don't want to say how much time, I don't know how much time, but clearly significant time researching his family's history. Really fascinating stuff and like busy, deep, deep, in like figuring out where his family came from. Very fascinating. It's interesting. We come from, it seems... It seems they weren't from for Darius, but we come from like a very, it's interesting, his family, it's, he traced back to what seems to be a very big Lubavitch family, which fascinated me that the last couple of years I happened to appreciate Lubavitch, and there was a big going in the Lubavitch world that it seems they're descendants of. This this person who was very close to the Tzemach said that was a Bucky Bishas and Paiskim. It's interesting. And he traced back. He's, he's not yet a from yet. And he traced back his Mishpach, what seems to this man. He's very busy, like, finding out about the family past. And I'm interested. I'm so fascinated that he's so interested in this. Now, there's certainly different personalities. Some people don't care about Yichus. Reb Miller is very stark that the Torah's hashkafa Yichus does matter. I don't like when people put down Yichus. Everybody knows the jokes. Yichus, a whole bunch of zeros. If you add a one, it means Yichus does matter. And we all come from Avram Avinu. We all are miyuchasim, and yichus matters. You see in the Torah, it always says ben 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 ben. The yichus matters. The miyache say after Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu davens that certain people shouldn't be miyuchas after him. It shouldn't trace it back to him. Beside them al nafshi, it matters. Yichus does matter. Reb Miller, when in, in speaking about Ashkafas Hatayra, describes that yichus matters. We're all bnei Avram. We all are miyuchasim, tremendous miyuchasim, and proud of it that we're B'nai Avram, and miyuchas matters. But I'm fascinated that he's so busy tracing back where we come from. And to me, it's something that I think many sophisticated people, as you get older, it becomes interesting to you, your roots, and where you come from, become more and more important to you. <clears throat> and I could tell you, I, I just want to say that I, I've had many times that I'll say over a vert. And I'll call my father or mention to my father. My father says, oh, that's my vert. And things that you heard from, from your youth that later on in life you, you, you feel is your own. And it comes from rebellion of your youth. It comes from your father. Things you heard from youth impact you tremendously. Things we hear from youth impact us amazingly. And it's always interesting me to think about things I heard when I was younger and things my Rebbe taught me and how it impacted me. I wanted to share, I wanted to share a few things. My Rebbe wrote a book, wrote a safer, a book about his father. Tzidka stands forever. And it's a book my Rebbe wrote about his own father. And I saw things in here that just clearly, that in a very clear way impacted my Rebbe. And things I saw in my Rebbe that clearly it traced back. I get where he got it from. And I wanted to share with you a few, a few interesting little small pointers that I wanted to share with you. 
The first, I'll tell you, this is the first thing I wanted to share with the Chavra. If you bear with me, we're going to read a little today, but we'll talk outside also. If you bear with me. He became a Rav in a shul in Ozone Park. My Rebbe's father became a, sh- a Rav in a shul in Ozone Park. And he describes, he was a tremendous tzaddik. He was a Yid who was a Talmud Chacham, was a Masmid, a Talmud Chacham, a big tzaddik. Fascinatingly, he was a Rav of a shul of not from people, mostly not from people. Most of the Jewish people were not showing me Shabbos. They were storekeepers for the most part, and stores were open on Shabbos, and were required by law to be closed on Sunday. But they were people who were deeply aware of being Jewish. They were afraid of anti-Semitism and of being conspicuously Jewish. They did not want to stand out as Jews. They wanted their sons to be bar mitzvah to marry Jewish girls. They went to Shul and Rashan and Yom Kippur and usually whenever Yizkar was said. Most of the Balbatim understood and some could even speak some Yiddish. Most can read Hebrew and they said Kaddish for their parents. Most of their wives bought kosher meats from Mr. Wilner or perhaps from a less reliably kosher butcher. They knew about milchigs and fleshigs, although they were not careful when a mix-up occurred. Some had been influenced by the apikarsis in the Yiddish papers or in the world around them and also by the late sonnets of the Yiddish theater. But for the most part, they were simple, good people who belonged to the shul, who didn't dive and became to shul meetings, who sent their kids to public school, but also to the Talmud Torah, and who hadn't the slightest idea they were to be the last generation of Jews in their families, that their children were to become the famous lost generation, whose own children, for the most part, would cease to be Jews entirely. When we moved to Waterbury, when we moved to Waterbury, my wife and I, you're all... You, most of us here grew up in very big Jewish communities. New York, in New Jersey, and in, in all different big Jewish communities. You weren't, you didn't, you weren't exposed to a phenomenon that, that is so wild and crazy. When we, I wasn't exposed till I moved to Waterbury. I never, I didn't even, it wasn't part of my world. I didn't know about it. When I moved to Waterbury, what was striking, it was all old people. The young people were gone. There were a lot of old Jewish people when we came here, a lot. And the youngsters were gone. There were no youngsters. Now, obviously, the, the community was once a fancy community. It was once a beautiful community. And clearly, it deteriorated somewhat. And you could say, you could say they moved out to prettier places, <coughs> but then, okay, so Yamim Taivim expect them back. The kids were gone. They weren't around anymore, the kids. And... What we became exposed to in moving to Waterbury, we would we meet, we knew these people. We had an old couple lived across from us. We became very, very close to. They'd come to our house. We'd go to their house. Most of their kids were gone. When I say gone, that means grandchildren who are goyim, Shem Yerachim, grandchildren who aren't Jews, who no longer are meyuchis. After you talk about yichus, it ended a chain, and the children were lost. Many, many, many children, precious Jewish children, who were completely lost from serving Hashem in profound ways. You're talking when a boy marries a Gaiish girl, it's not about anymore, they'll come back, not from yet, you're talking about loss. It was, it, was, it was exposed to something so tragic and so, you'd walk into shul, it stuck out, the kids are lost. Now, we entered at a time, they weren't savable anymore. The kids were lost. They were, they were in marriages to Goyim and, and not existing anymore. 
And this, right, my Rebbe's father was at a time when it was happening, and this is a man who spent his life trying to reverse it and save lives. He saved Dyrus generations, his father. He was trying to stop. You had a picture who these people were. They were survivors, many of them were survivors. If they got out before the war, they had come to a country alone and poor, and their icker thing was survival. And many, many weren't thinking about frumkeit, about serving Hashem. They were trying to survive. And they were looking to make money and to build a better life. And we lost generations. We lost great lines, great tzaddikim, great achreinim's kids who were just lost to Yiddishkeit, lost to serving Hashem forever, it's, 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 it's very, very sad to think about. You think about Avram Avinu, what he wanted. Avram Avinu said to Hashem, What can you give me and I don't have children? Avram Avinu said, When I pass on, I want people loyally serving Hashem. And he was thinking about future diaries. He wanted to leave generations who were loyalists to Hashem, who continued serving Hashem when he parts in this world, but his impact was such. And we're still here. We are the children he prayed for. And we're still here, loyally serving Hashem. If you think about the opposite of great tzaddikim and gedolim, whose lines just ended, people went off, it's, it's frightening to think about. His father was at a time, was there when it was happening, and actually was waging war and trying to do something about it, and succeeded. I went, I brought Bachram in this yeshiva to a Rosh Yeshiva, who was made, who, who became from, at right Paris table, was, grew up in Ozone Park, in this community, today's Rosh Yeshiva. I asked him for stories about Raiper. Raiper's father was surrounded by mysterious stories, by Nisim. He said he was Morgan, and he told me a great Nase story, but he said, don't tell your Rebbe I told you this story, he'll be angry at me. Raiper doesn't like miracle stories. He wrote a book about his father, there's not one miracle story in the whole book. It's just a very honest, clear... He doesn't like these stories. He doesn't think there's a lot to be learned from these miracle stories. Typically, the dramatic stories. Somebody will say, you know, a kid and Trump was bawling. I can't stand these stories. These stories, they just just ignore. True stories. You'll read a book like this and you'll see sophisticated, clear, very impressive stories that are just what to learn from, really profound things to learn from. So... I want to, so this is the community that he chose to inspire. When he passed away, Raipair's father, the last, one of the last wills he left to Raipair is to bury him in this community. To bury with these, he had a kever amongst Sadiqim and Talmidi Chachamim, and he told his son, he wants to be buried. Now, you don't, you don't get buried amongst people that are Mechali Shabbos. He insisted to be buried there. His reason was fascinating. You don't, you're not supposed to be buried amongst every Avey. Raiper was very upset. My Rebbe was very upset. He called Ramesha Feinstein to, say, to ask if he should listen. And Ramesha said he has to listen. Today, my Rebbe's father, this Sadik, is buried, surrounded, and he didn't want any fence up. He said, you're not allowed to put a fence surrounding. I have to do the same stone. No difference. I want to be buried amongst my 
flock. What was his rationale? He had a reason that's so inspiring. He said in he said in years their grandchildren will come to the kever totally, many of them unaffiliated, and they'll see a. I want them to see a rabbi buried amongst them, and to think rabbi pair. Maybe that will they'll remember what I stood for, and maybe will impact one grandchild. So I want to be buried amongst them, which is unbelievable. And my pair, listen, I had no choice. Ramesha told me he has to listen. He had no choice but to listen. The I'm sorry. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So, this was his. This was his shul that he's part of. Now, this is what I wanted. To, this is what I wanted to say. My father's most intensive efforts were with the young. He taught the classes at the shuls Talmud Torah. With the better boys, he would learn Mishnayis, especially Bab Metziah. With the very few, he was able to learn Gemara. But to all of them, he would teach Chumas and Shefer Shmuel, into which he poured his heart and his love for Yiddishkeit. He was filled. Every Messiah I have in Chumash is from my Rebbe, which is from his father. I didn't know it was all from his father till I read his book on his father. Listen to this. He was filled to overflowing with explanations and Mepharshim as well as his own special insights, but he was careful not to overload his Talmudim with different opinions. In order for them to hear the Torah's message, he would teach only one interpretation. And he chose always to give explanations that were understandable and inspiring to his students. He avoided explanations that they might find irrational or mysterious. My father understood that the Torah wants us not only to learn, but also to be inspired by the actions of our forefathers. Before I read further, because I do want to read further, it's something important. The first thing there is that when he taught, he taught the clear things to teach. He avoided the mystical or irrational, quote-unquote, explanations. It is so precious. I want guys from here to teach Torah. Even if your profession is elsewhere, I want guys to give shiurim and to teach Torah and spread Torah. The importance, you don't teach everything you know. The goal of teaching is, some people's entire goal of teaching is to teach their smart. That is tragic and sad. The goal of teaching is not people to say, my rabbi is smart. The goal of teaching is that Torah is learned. You don't teach everything you know. I'm so moved. Here was a massive Talmud Chachma. I think only two people got smicha on Chayshim Mishpat from Rav Aaron Cutler. He was one of two people in the world. He was a massive Talmud Chacham. He taught the clear pshatim. There were areas he didn't go. This is like the Rebbeim, and it's important. In every sugya of Gemara, there's the clear things. And in every sugya, Shas is infinite. Is un- it's Hashem's Chachma. It's infinitely deep. And there's Rev Kivayer studied Shas. Do you understand? From the greatest minds who ever lived, sat there. The Gra, the Vilna Gain, sat there pondering Shas. There is endless depth in Shas. Very poor Rebbeim give over to Talmidim the parts that are unclear. It's a very unhealthy and unsuccessful way of teaching Torah. We all have parts that we don't have clear, and we have parts that are gorgeous and beautiful. When you teach Talmidim, you teach what's beautiful and clear. It's very, very dangerous and unsuccessful. You might have a suffix. Who said you should say it? Because you have it, so don't say it. You give over what's clear. And then as the Talmud progress, nobody's present. Of course, there are areas you're unsure. There are areas of uncertainty. The Torah is endless. 
You see Rebbeim that aren't successful Rebbeim are very busy with what's not clear. And you walk out of share less clear than more clear that is poor teaching skills often it's just bad middos because you're just tempted to say everything you know and to show how smart and your sophisticated mind but you didn't teach Torah properly. A move that when he taught Torah, he was teaching Talmidim, he was thinking what's the best for them to hear. When you're asked to speak, you could tell two types of speakers. There's one who say what they want to say and one who says what the audience needs to hear. Remember to say what the audience needs to hear, not what you want to say. And think before, what do they need to hear? What's important for them to hear? In every case you speak, in every case you teach, what's important for them to hear, not what you want to say? When you think what you want to say, so then your teaching is really teaching, no matter what you teach, you're really just teaching one thing. You're teaching you are smart. That's not the best thing to teach students. It's not the most important thing to learn. You can tell them if you want, day number one, I am smart. Now let's move on. Let's get past that. You want to tell them. If you want to, it's not the best thing that your teaching teaches you are smart. That's not the goal. It shouldn't be part of the teaching process. What should be part of the teaching process is what do they need to hear. That he, when he taught Chumash, didn't say many pshatim. That what, I'll go to a speech sometimes. If you ever heard Rev Miller, I'm so gripped by the man. He taught us one thing, because what we needed to hear. He didn't set forth to dazzle. And dazzle he could have. There's a man who knew <laughs> but that wasn't what he was setting forth to do to show you everything he knew on the matter. There should be things you don't teach when you teach. I'm moved by Rebbe himself. I was shocked that my Rebbe, I found that only when I was a little older that my Rebbe knows a lot of Machshava. Do you know I never heard Machshava from my Rebbe? Never. Like Maral, more esoteric stuff. So I always thought he just doesn't know that stuff. He didn't teach it. You don't teach everything you know. You don't teach. If you're a person whose goal is to show you smarts and teach everything you know. If your goal is to have people learn Torah, Hashem's Chachma, so teach what you can know on a sugi a lot more and not give over everything you know. And the fact that he taught Chumash with such a clarity of what was good for them to and what not, he didn't say over many shitas. It's not always Kedai to say many shitas. I'll just say there also when you teach Torah, don't say in the eyes of what the Gros says, according to the Rishonim, because just the Emes, the Rishonim say it is true. So you teach it as truth. I don't like you see some scholarly people say according to Chazal in the eyes of Chazal. Those words tremendous chil Hashem when they say that. Some scholarly people say according to Chazal, the Rambam's view is not how you teach Torah. The Rambam says it's Emes. So you say, this is the pshat. The Rambam said it. You know, in the eyes, Rambam, I see scholars, Rambam says, you Rambam says, it's the MS. You found the MS in the Rambam. But this is the MS. This is the MS. I suspect this big shail is why Rev Miller didn't quote his sources. Speak Shailas amongst the Talmudim. I have a suspicion, because there's so much apikarsis like this, in the eyes of this one. And he said, this is the Emes. And then you find where he said it. This is the Emes. My father said this. He said this. I'm saying the Emes. Right? Oh, excellent. Excellent. Because the truth, in the eyes of Rambam, in the eyes of Chazal, that's very, very poor way of talking. But the fact that my Rebbe's father... 
had, a, had, had specific things he taught and what he didn't teach. And the fact that he looked for the more clear things, they're mystical things. Who said you should teach the mystical? I am highly concerned today it's very, mysticism's very in. I have suspicions it's in because people don't want to be obligated. It's much better to learn a mystical thing than something that talks to you. But also, it has negative ramifications often. You teach mystical stuff, the Torah talks to us and demands from us. But the fact that it's cheshman, some people teach mystical things. Rev. Hutner taught mystical things with a specific intention. Rev. Hutner had a reason. He wanted to be meraimim. He wanted the word I use for Rev. Hutner is to be meraimim, to elevate. He wanted the people to know there's a whole magical world. People he felt were very, like, living very small. There's a big world. There's a magical world. See, he taught mysticism to be aware of it. But it should be becheshben what you're teaching. It should be becheshben. You should have a pshat guy when you're teaching Torah. I'm not saying over this pshat. It's not clear enough. It doesn't bring out. It will just confuse. I'm not saying over this pshat. It will just confuse. I want to show. If you ever read the stipler, is a master Rebbe. The stipler, besides being from the Tzadiki Adar, was a master Rebbe. He taught what was clear. Every piece of the stipler is like the perfection of Torah. Of course, there are areas that are not clear, and Torah is still perfect. We're just limited. And the areas that aren't clear, that's not what he was giving over to Talmidim. So the fact he avoided explanation that might find irrational and mysterious, the fact that there were cheshbainus, what he taught, so... Akiva, there's not a minor detail of teaching. It affects the whole approach of what you're of what you're doing, what you're about. That he was thinking his father what he taught. To me, this is what I got. This is what my Rebbe gave us. This is what he gave us. This is a Yidu Numach Shava. I found that lady. It was like a Bucky in Maral. We never heard one Maral. You know how tempting it is to like throw float it out there. You float it. The Talmidim of the altar argue how much he knew. You know that? The Talmidim of the altar of Slobodka, it's like a huge debate. Was he a mess? How big of a Talmud Chacham was he? He was busy being Mechanech his whole life. It's the coolest debate that nobody knows. I don't care how big he was or wasn't. I'm fascinated that you couldn't know because he taught what the Talmidim needed to hear. It's so cool that you couldn't know. The teacher was just trying to teach that he's smart, so the Talmidim know what he knows and doesn't know. Just go, just see what he taught. The fact that the Alta of Slobodka, the Talmidim didn't know how much he knew, because it wasn't relevant how much he knew, because he wasn't teaching whether he knew or not. That wasn't what he was teaching whether he knew or not. So the Talmidim would argue, does he know a lot or not? Fascinating debate. When you teach Torah, don't teach everything you know. Teach what's important for them to hear. You might know much more in the time. I, I'm going to say, he, if he, I'd rather he wasn't here to hear this. With Ezi, I've seen it. And one of the most things I'm impressed in his teaching, I've seen on topics he knows, he does not teach everything he knows on a topic. I've seen that in Revezi on different topics. He knows much more than he teaches on a topic. That is excellent. Who said you're supposed to teach everything you know on a topic? Maybe that wasn't what... It just confused... The discipline of not teaching everything you know is, is chashim, very chashim. And the fact that Paris' father said one pshat and avoided certain types of pshatim, to me, is, is very, very chashim. But I want to go on. 
This is the second point in how he taught. My father understood that the Torah wants us not only to learn, but also to be inspired by the actions of our forefathers, by their truthfulness and their sacrifice and their greatness. He believed that the impact of the Chumash becomes obscured and muted when too many opinions about what happened are presented, or when what are to the students poorly understood and mystical madrashim are added. He felt you add like these mystical midrashim. It sounds all magical, but you missed the point. Throughout his life, he learned Chumash, and he puzzled over the Pshat. The heroes of the Torah were as alive to him, and because of him, as alive in our home, as if they were members of our family, who were perhaps only temporary absent at the moment. For several years, he learned with me at home every day in the morning, and among other things, we completed the entire Chumash. I will never forget how he cried when he taught me the parish of the death of Maish Rabbeinu. As I write these words, my own eyes are filled with tears, nor can I avoid tears when the parish is read on Simchas Torah, all from the memory of my father's tears. He was very against skipping parts of the Torah. Another important thing I learned from my father is that there is no skipping any part of the Torah. Every word, every letter is inestimably important. Guys always ask me what they should learn with another book, like they want to inspire somebody. I promise you can, as long as you're interested, any part of the Torah can inspire somebody. You'd be shocked. Well, you think I skip this? I want to get to something more juicy. Let's say you're learning with a younger Bach, you're learning with C.S. Sharm, say this. I promise if you sincerely try to figure it out, you'll be shocked. You think like this page, this paragraph, let me get to something really inspirational. If you're an honest way, and I've seen it over and over in my life, you go in, yesterday I wanted to talk about a topic of, of, of like it seemed like, a, you know, interesting. I found like yesterday guys, told, the response to yesterday, we spoke about a topic, if you're insulted, don't insult back. Any topic in the Torah that is honestly studied and thought about and learned has massive impact. Things you think, this won't, this, let me get to something juicy. If you're in an honest way, try to understand the Dvar Hashem, sincerely, it's impactful. He was very against skipping a part of the Torah. Every word, every letter is inestimably important. The lists of generation and Bereshis were learned and reviewed, and the numbers added up laboriously on paper. He would figure out the generations. The Mishkan was learned in every vessel carefully examined. You might think, there's no inspiration here. Study it with your children. Study it yourself. The details of the Karbanas and Vayik were, were memorized. The chapter of Yehuda and Tamar were learned like every other with no embarrassment or censorship. My father found out that a certain yeshiva started using a Chumash text that had been abridged by some self-anointed pedagogical expert. Somebody felt he was like an expert on Chinuch. He went down to the yeshiva and made sure those textbooks were removed. To this day, I'm astonished when I hear that certain frumistas skip part of the Chumash supposedly for the benefit of their students. Teach all the Torah. Learn every part of your children. Don't worry. See, how can I teach them this one? They'll teach Yehudah and Tamar. Go explain this one. Teach the Torah. Shame. Come and shame what they did to not teach the Torah. Learn the Torah. Learn every part of the Torah. When guys ask, what can they learn with the younger Vachah? Give me something juicy. Any Mishnah you learn, you can learn a Mishnah and Klayim in any part of, of, of the Torah. And study it sincerely. You will see it as impact. The Torah is powerful. If you sincerely try to understand and just work hard and real to understand what's being said exactly, you'll see its magical impact of Torah. Every part of Torah. 
So those are just some of the things I wanted to read about his teaching. The two specific things I wanted to say is the focus on chat. People in learning a sugya can get so deep and lose the point and lose the point of chat the fact that the others were real to the family, the fact that it wasn't lost in all the deeper things and his endless depth and study depth but the message of the others of the great people weren't lost and the fact that there was a decision what to teach are things lately Zish, in my old age I'm pushing more that guys teach Torah, no matter what I don't care what you're, I'm not talking about profession I don't care what profession, give a share on Shabbos Kodesh in your community gather all the youngsters. Why don't you gather all your friends, all your kids' friends, and say, Yashir, the eight kids, the three kids, the six kids, teach Torah, Rabbi say. Teach Torah. The world needs sincere, good people, good men to teach you. Guys can connect to teach Torah. Teach Torah. Gather people and teach Torah. No matter what profession. If your profession's that, Ashrech of Your profession's not that, teach Torah, Rabbi say. So two nekudas, but teach the Ernst Anything you learned, you don't have to skip. Anything he didn't skip when he taught. Everything sincerely, everything pshat. And you don't have to teach everything you know on a matter. Try to give over the clarity of the Indian. That it walks out to have such a clear thing. That was something I wanted to say. I want to read... I want to read two stories to you. If you just know my Rebbe, when he says his story, everything's like very exact, the details. A story is crazy powerful. The reason I don't like just any story is because of how powerful a story is. In the Chassidish world, stories like whole systems of thought are built on stories. In the Musa world, we have stories we've studied together in the Musa world that are life-changing. If you know how Shas works, what's the most powerful proof to anything, Rabbi say? A story. A story is massive proof to something. It's very ironic, and I want to explain this. In English, there's something called anecdotal evidence. Anecdot- What's anecdotal evidence? It will be the word of the day. Anecdotal. In, 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 in the world, anecdotal evidence is the, is the least right in the world to something. How do you know if a medicine is junk? How do you know if a medicine is junk? If it says on the bottle... You know, Bobby W. from Oregon says that his back was cleared up by this. You know it's junk. Look for the next medicine. I was at the pharmacy the other night at 1 in the morning. I had a run. A family member needed medicine. And I ran to the pharmacy at 1 in the morning, Baruch Hashem. And I'm going, and I was looking for a certain medicine. And with choices, so I take that. That's one of my ways of knowing that medicine's no good. If it says on it, Bobby W. from Oregon, I think that's what it said, says that he totally cured him of whatever he was, his ailment. Next medicine. Why is anecdotal evidence the worst type of proof in the world? Why? Because it means... Or not even that. I can right. just write whatever I want. Because it means if there was scientific evidence it worked, they wouldn't write Bobby W. from Oregon. It means there's no studies that it works. So Bobby W. from Oregon is the way you find any guy. In the, you know, there's always a Bobby W. somewhere. It's not, it's not provable. It's just like you throw out there. William says he's never felt better since he tried this. Those are the medicines. It's usually alternative medicine. Next, find the thing that studies show that proper research has been done. When there's good, I assure you, on something that's good on aspirin, it will never say on Tylenol that Bobby W. from Oregon. They don't care Bobby W. There's, there's, there's 
there's, there's Pashut scientific evidence that it works. So that's in the world, and the reason it's not powerful is because it's usually made up stories and it's opinions. In our world, you have to adjust. The story is the biggest proof in the world. It's called Maiserav. Maiserav means a story from a Godol. Because if a Gadol said something in the base Medrash, they were thinking it was theoretical. Who said they're going to carry it out? Lemaisa. There's a lashon of a Gemara getting lefisha under nizdam me nasa meisa. Just because we said in the base Medrash, who said I meant it practically? We were thinking. We were discussing. If you see a Rebbe do something the most powerful, this is what he did. It's called Gadol Shimusha Yosem Limudai. By gedolim, by true stories, anecdotal evidence is the most powerful. The Sefer itself, Maiser Rab, is written about who? I want you to memorize this. The Sefer, Maiser Rab. Yank, if you know who it's about, the Sefer, Maiser Rab, is stories with which great, with which great person, Yehuda? Good Kivla the Grah. Good Akivla. The Grah, Maiser Rab, are stories all about Hanhagas, actions of the Grah. It's very, very powerful, Yosef, and a very important safer because they're all true. And if you saw the Grah do it, that's powerful. A story with the Rebbe is unbelievable powerful. I saw him do this. It's more powerful than things he said in the base Medrash. I saw him do it. So it's funny. In our world, a story is very powerful precisely because it bothers me stories. Who said it? And until you know who said it, ignore the story. Because they're so important. Don't listen to Bobby W. said, who said he said, who is Bobby W.? Where did it come from? There are too many made-up stories. Find out which Godel, who said, what said. It has to be valid. The exact nature of who it came from. If it's just the story set out there, it's just throw it away. It has to be a verified, clear story I heard from. And if it's not from that, throw it away because it messes up the good stories. Who do you hear from? So I want to read to you a story that I am moved by from my Rebbe. It's written with accuracy. He was there and he's somebody who's mocked on every letter. And there are a few, there's really two points I want to bring out of this story. So if you bear with me, I would like to read to you this story. A visit to my grandmother in Coney Island was a long, I should read it correctly, a visit to my Bubba in Coney Island was a long, I got Musa from Rebbe Fal Shmuel Levitz. I just was chazim with Chaim Stern. So I'm reading this. I have to read it loyally. I just was chazim with Chaim Stern. There was a great tzaddik and a godl, Rebbe Fal Shmuel Levitz. Tremendous tzaddik, Rebbe Chaim Shmuel Levitz. His son, Rebbe Fal Shmuel Levitz, a goyim b'tayra. And he was giving a shir to guys and I was translating into English. So I was the metorgaman. He was saying it in Yiddish. So he would say a little of the shir. I translate. He would say the shir and I translate it. I did not think he was following my translations. He doesn't speak much English. I didn't think he was interested in my translation. He's saying in Yiddish, I'm translating. He said a little bit. He said a little. And I felt like he left off like in the middle of something. It was like a bad point to leave off the way I felt. So I was anticipating what he was going to say next. It was like obvious what he was going to say next. So in English, I translated more than he said. I translated more than he said, thinking like helping him out. He was like, and it was clear what he was going to say. So I translated more. He got very upset at me. He gave me Muslim. He rebuked me, and he wasn't like wasn't like being cute. He rebuked me. It was scary, a big gadol, and he said that's not honest what you just did. I didn't say that. Trans, uh, you're translating to me. Don't say. I didn't say that yet. It's, don't, it's not right. 
He gave me musr, tremendous musr on Emes. That's not right. I didn't say that yet. You're saying what I didn't say. It's not a loyal. You're, you're here saying you're translating. It's disloyal. So let me read that again. A visit to my Baba in Coney Island was a long, seemingly, seemingly endless trip from Ozone Park, by bus and then by subway. When my father took me along. We usually reviewed Mishnayis on the trip. He's going with his father to his grandmother. My father would call it. Sometime around 1946. You have to picture Rabbi He's in a world, all the kids were in public school. He's in a world, there were no B'nai Torah in 1946 in America. There were none. There were very few. There were a couple. He's on a train learning Mishnayis with his son. This wasn't, there wasn't much Mishnayis learned. I assure you there were no Dafyoimis on the train in 1946. But anyway, he's learning Mishnayis with his son on the train. We were coming back from a visit to Coney Island when at one of the stations a passenger got on the train carrying a fishing rod and some other paraphernalia. He sat down across the from us and put a small cardboard box on the seat in front of him. The train moved on and I paid no attention until I realized the fisherman had gotten off and left the small cardboard behind on the seat. I got up and took the box and found that it contained an expensive looking fishing reel. A man left on the train an expensive fishing reel. I had learned Bob Mitzvah with my father, and my father analyzed with me what we should do with the reel. He then said, although I was permitted to keep the reel since it was left in an unguarded place, still I should turn it to the lost and found, because maybe its owner will seek after it, and returning it might bring about a Kiddush Hashem. His father said, from returning it. His father felt that he, they spoke over, and his father felt he should put it into the lost and found. We got off the train at Sutfin, at Sutfin Boulevard, and I turned in the reel to the agent in charge in the change booth there. I told him that if it was not claimed, I wanted it back. He wrote down my name and address and told me that if the reel was not claimed in 90 days, I would get it back. Three months is a long time for a youngster to wait, especially when waiting for something so exciting. Those endless three months finally passed, and then another few days, and then I began to nag my father to find out what happened and maybe get the reel back. My father got on the phone and spoke to someone at the Transit Authority. Then after another wait, a letter arrived which said that there was no record of a fishing reel being turned in. But upon investigation, a notation of my name and address was found in the change booth at the Sutphin Boulevard station. I stood there... I should therefore come to Lexington Avenue Extension where an auction of unclaimed property was being prepared and upon showing this letter to the person in charge I'd be permitted to choose for myself any fishing reel I wanted. If they didn't find his, somehow it got lost. Go to the lost and found and you could take a fishing reel from there. If my nagging had brought me this far, it wasn't going to stop me now. Shortly after, as my father and I were on the train to Lexington Avenue, there we entered an extremely large underground room that was filled with the most surprising things that had been lost somewhere in the transit system during the past year. There seemed to be thousands of umbrellas stacked almost to the ceiling along one wall. There were cartons of eyeglasses, cartons of books, bales of garments, a box of dentures, even a new car tire, and a small box of fishing reels over which I hovered, making up my mind which to choose. As I stood there deciding, one of the workers called my father down to the other side of the large room saying, 
So they're in this lost and found room. He brought his son. It's amazing. One Sitkus that he had his son with Flemishers that didn't turn in a fishing reel. Then a second Sitkus that he promised his son, so he delivered. He brought him back to the station to claim a reel like he's entitled to claim one of the reels that was Hefker. When they go down there, two Sitkus brought this story. The guy says, Rabbi, it's something that you will be interested in. I followed after my father and was shown a large brown paper package which was then opened to reveal a Sefer Torah. The Torah was without its Atzei Chaim. It didn't have the, the wood part. And was rolled from Tvarim to Boratius, the entire Sefer Torah. As I remember, it had been wrapped in a warm velvet shulchan cover of which the brown paper had then been wrapped. We were astonished and speechless. There was a Sefer Torah in the lost and found. When the shop passed, my father asked what would be done with the Torah, and he was told that it would be auctioned off to the highest bidder, just like everything else. My father asked when the auction would be held and was given the date. It was a Shabbos. My fishing reel paled into insignificance. On the train ride home, I kept coming up with schemes for saving that Sefer Torah. I remember that we were coming down the staircase from the... From the L at Leftford's Boulevard, when I accepted the fact there was just no way we could do it. We came home, and my father got back on the phone with the transit authority. This time he was speaking to people whom he had spoken to before, and he knew whom to ask for. He explained that the Sefer Torah is the most sacred object to Jews, and he requests, although it was, he was unable because of Shabbos to bend himself, the transit should be careful to auction only to someone who would treat it with the proper respect. They answered they would take the matter under consideration. A few days later, a letter arrived from the transit authority saying they didn't know how to treat the Torah with proper respect. They asked my father to come down and take possession of the Torah himself. Shortly after we brought home the Torah, my father said to me that now there was a safe Torah in the house, even a Torah that is possible, we all have to try to behave in a more careful manner. They have a Torah in the house. He asked his whole family to be more careful. There's a safe Torah in the house. He describes where it was where they put the Sefer Torah. He describes up on top of the shelf, the Sefer Torah lay for more than 10 years. He had a Sefer Torah in his house for more than 10 years waiting to return it. He said he finally found after 10 years, he got to return it to the one. He said over the years, he would go into Svarim stores and he would ask, they ever heard of somebody who had lost the Sefer Torah? Not long ago, I received a phone call from someone who heard that I was asking about someone who lost the Sefer Torah. He told me he had once lost the Sefer Torah on the train. He was a refugee and worked by day as a cutter in a factory. At night, he worked as a cipher to make a few extra dollars. He was given the job to repair a Torah, and he removed Atzei Chaim as is usually done by cipher. And he took it home with him on the train. Being very tired, he dozed off and then woke up with a start. He realized it was his station. He jumped up and quickly got off, and only as the train pulled away did he remember the Sefer Torah. He was a newcomer in this country, and so he didn't know that he should inquire if the lost and found. He negotiated a settlement with the shul, and over a long period of time, he paid them $3,000, which was a fortune in those days. If he would be given the Sefer Torah, he said he would get his money back from the shul, $3,000. My father asked him for a bank check of $1,500 in security, in case someone else would come with a claim, and then gave him the Sefer Torah to him. He gave him the Sefer Torah. That I said to my father, you know that that was your Sefer Torah, belonged to you, not to him. And I suppose like, that he gave you a simon that the first word is voracious. I know my father said, but to me, Yechiel, if Nimishur Sadin is the right thing. Rabbi say, the bottom line of this story is the sincerity of a person. When you follow the will of Hashem, you go to places where you're supposed to be. 
When people are not following, I was talking to a bacher, and he was describing that, he's, that he has a relationship with a girl. I said, if you're breaking the will of Hashem, then you're not following the proper flow where Hashem sends us. We need siyata deshmai in our life. When you're loyal and sincere to Hashem, He leads you exactly where you need to go by following the will of Hashem. Just the beautiful story that he Sadin has his son return a reel, a fishing reel, and then they go they go to pick up the fishing reel that he's entitled to now, but that Lifnimishur Sadin causes him to find a much more important item, a Sefer Torah. And then Lifnimishur Sadin, he returns the Sefer Torah to its rightful owner, saving the guy $3,000. I found such touching when you follow the will of Hashem, how a person is led so beautifully to the right places. The mitzvah, Gereris mitzvah, the one mitzvah causes another mitzvah, and the sincerity of the chenuch, raising a child in a world which was so so far removed from Bab Metzayah, from Ashava Saveda, while they're on the train, they're discussing the halachis of Ashava Saveda with his son. And more specifically, I want to tell you that the Iker Chinuch to our children is not speeches we give our children. I, I always, I, I've told the guys many times that my Rebbe's main thing he taught us for nine years was honesty in business. It's the main thing he taught us. Who knows when I read this Sefer and I see how his father taught him to be honest. They're on a train and they discover a reel. And he told his son, return it back. I was Zaycha to learn by somebody for nine years who spoke about honesty more than anything in the world. He spoke about honesty. And when I read this Sefer and I see little stories, that's a precious Maiserav. They're on a train and they find a reel and they take the time. Pashat in Kameen, your son La Lacha is allowed to take it. His father, who was a very busy man, inconvenienced himself to return the item. Lifnim Mishur Sadin, teaching his son, of course, honesty, teaching his son careful with somebody else's money. Then he teaches his son, he brings him back to claim what's rightfully his son. It's annoying, go buy him a fishing rod. No, he drives him back to pick up a fishing reel that he's entitled to. And then he finds a Sefer Torah and Lufnim Mishur Sadin returns the Sefer Torah. It was his to keep. That's thousands of dollars a Sefer Torah. But he returns the Sefer Torah. The lessons that are taught much greater than speeches in a little precious story, in a little quote-unquote insignificant story, the most important things are learned from stories. The best lessons we teach to our children in our world, the Maiserab is important. We don't look at it as anecdotal proof because it's true. The importance of the sincere story with your own children. Daily, your best impact is the little sincere story of honesty. There's a, there's a story with, with Rebbets and Cutler. Rebbets and Cutler's children, they used to have around these scales that you put a quarter and you, t- and you took your weight. Rev. Aaron Cutler had his rabbits and rabbits and Rachel, they had two kid, two of their kids, and there was a scale that you could jump, you put a quarter and you get your weight. Well, the kids figured out, they both jumped on the scale and it went to 200 pounds. Then one jumped off, the scale was like still working. So they both jumped on quickly, went to 200 pounds. One jumped off and it said 100 pounds. They knew they each weighed 100 pounds. So they figured out a trick to get both their weights from one quarter. So the kids did it brilliantly. Rabbits and Rishel then walked up, didn't say anything to the kids, and put a second quarter in there and walked away. A little story, but a powerful lesson, better than any speech to the children, a Maiserav of honesty, that you got two weights from it put in the second quarter.
Honesty. Two weights we got, not one. She dumped in a second quarter. The power of a maiserab, the power of a story, it's not something theoretical. This is practical how we live. Sometimes you'll be invited to... I remember being invited to a certain bar mitzvah of a child, and the father got up very dramatically to, to give a to give a lesson to his child. Very dramatically, he got up, he was going to give, deliver a great lesson to his child. This is the great message he had for his child. And like dramatically, it was all, it was a great show of a dramatic message to his child. It made me laugh a little bit. Because very nice at the bar mitzvah, you know you quote your son in this awkward moment, the kid's looking at his father. The father hasn't spoken to his kid intimately in his life. But he's making it with like, son, young son, and the kid's like looking at his dad, like, like uncomfortable. It's, very, it, it's a nice show for everybody. I, I apologize my cynicism to come out. It's a very nice show. The father utters his big drasha. That's not, it's a nice, it's a, give a good speech to your son's bar mitzvah. It's an emotional time. Your main messages are day in, day out. If that, you talk to your kid by the little, the, the Adam for second quarter. Did you find something? My son and I at a Shaila, I'm still haunted if I did the right thing. We're in a Muncie parking lot after visiting Zisha. And there was a gorgeous cell phone in the parking lot of Evergreen. Now, I was very misopic. Is that Roy Vieden? It's probably Roy Jews. And a beautiful phone was on. I'm still haunted if we did, maybe we didn't do the right thing. It's the Dina Shabbos Now, even though there's Roy Goyim in the world, and parking lot of Evergreen, a beautiful cell phone sitting on the floor next to a car. We both held, there was no way of opening it. These things are locked. If we take it, the chance of getting back to the owner are like slim. I don't know if these things are locked in strong ways. I didn't know if we could get it back. It was right next to a car. There was a good likelihood. You can't, there are tons of stores there. There are a lot of stores. You're not going to find it. I don't know if we did the right thing. I don't know if we could have gone store to store, but until you walk into one store, other store people leave, come and go. It's a shopping mall. I thought the best thing is when a guy comes back to his car to leave it there. There are cases if the best way of returning it's leaving it there. And it was slightly mishummer. It was guarded. It was right next to a car. We don't know if we did the right thing. We don't know. Lemais, we left it. Also, my son saw, he saw it somewhere that was right, there was like a text or an email on the phone that you could still see that was like a Gaiish name. It was like Kyle or Kyrie, a very Gaiish name. It's a good chance it was a non Jew. We held, we left it. But the, the practical stories of honesty are the stories, the best way of teaching your kid more than speeches. Who knows that this little story with my, father, my Rebbe's father caused what he taught us for nine years. The importance of the sincere story. Rabbi says a lot more to say, but it's, it's now 12.02. The Rosh Hashiva Shlita is going to say a shir at 12.10 sharp. I'm asking everybody come right back here to this spot in eight minutes sharp at 12.10.